Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Joining us now with the shifts of Edith Supermanian, Head of Equity and quantitative strategy at B of A. Give me the quant angle on how we lift up well above 4,000. What's the quantitative place we're in right now that gets us out to a bull market? Yeah, well, so we looked at um, at a variety of signals. And first of all, narrow breath is not a precursor for doom and gloom. So I just want to get that out there. That Lizanne narrow- Saunders agrees with that as Schwab. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of a false negative. And then when you look at valuations right now, they look high, which is another reason nobody wants to buy stocks. But valuations generally look high when you're in an earnings recession, which we are in right now. And I think that when you look at the equity risk premium for stocks, it could actually go lower. And Our call is the riskiest asset class in the world right now is the risk-free rate. Basically, treasuries are the bubble. That's the epicenter of the bubble. Everyone's been buying treasuries and pushing interest rates down to close to zero, and now we're working through that. But if we are in this sticky inflationary environment, do you really want to be in cash or bonds? Don't you want to be in stocks that participate in inflation? So that's our call. And I think that stocks are, are kind of you know, reviled right now because everybody's worried that we're going into a recession. Think about it. We've been positioning for this recession for like six quarters, right? So we're now at a point where the average money manager or individual investor is mostly in defensives, more overweight defensives and cyclicals than we've seen since 2008. So I feel like this is another setup for a cyclical rally. You know, 4,300 isn't that far away from where we are today. So we're not being, you know, heroes in terms of the the cap-weighted benchmark. But I do think that you can make money by owning some of these unloved cyclicals that aren't necessarily going to get roiled by, you know, what looks to be, you know, not such a bad recession. I mean, our economists are basically forecasting 0.8% peak to trough declines in GDP. Not bad. Not bad. So let's get to it. Let's not bury the lead. 4,300 is not the headline. It's an equal weight S&P 500 call. It's leaning into cyclicals. For the cyclicals, just go through... What industry groups, industrials, banks, what is it about the cyclicals right now that you like? What I like about them is that nobody wants to talk about them, that the recession that we're heading into isn't that bad. And we are at a point where um, cyclical sectors have actually become higher quality. And I know this sounds crazy to say, but if you look at energy, metals, even financials, right, the the big global uh, regulated banks, 
These companies have been forced to get disciplined because they've been starved of capital for a very long time. We've been in a decade where nobody wants to invest in commodities or metals or mining or banks. And these companies had to basically get disciplined, figure out how to become self-sufficient. And today, I would argue that they're higher quality than a lot of these so-called secular growth plays that have just had a free ride from cheap capital, globalization, like all of these sort of low-quality sources of growth. Let's talk about the other side of that call, yep. especially given that equal weight is going to deliver double the gains of market cap uh, weighted, which I think is fascinating and raises real questions about your tech call. <clears throat> and is it just simply trading sideways, allowing the cycl cyclicals to sort of gain and lifting the index? Or does that mean that they sell off? I mean, are they basically going to go opposite each other? So I think there's a way that that big tech can can do all right during this period, and that's if these companies start to shorten their duration risk. And and what I mean by this is a lot of these big tech companies offer great growth way out in the future, so they're going to get hurt harder by changes in the cost of capital. What some of these companies are doing is acknowledging that they're too big to grow as quickly, so they're returning cash and shortening their duration. I think that's the way that we can start investing in big tech again, is if we start getting more money up front, and maybe that doesn't happen for a while, and I know it's heresy to say that some of these companies are going to initiate it dividend, all the growth investors that I talk to are like, what are you talking about? That's unthinkable. But, you know, look at a lot of these tech companies in the past that have initiated dividends, they've rallied on the news. So I think that this is one of those those themes where as we move forward, the market might trade sideways, tech companies figure out how to navigate higher inflation, a higher cost of capital. Some of them go away. Some of them already have gone away. Smaller banks mm -hmm. I worry about, but big banks I think are still in a, a very good capital position. So, you, so those are some of the things. You've got such a wide net at Bank of America. Are people cautious? Are they gloomy? I mean, I'm getting back and forth here oh in the world. Like, the world's coming to an end. We're all going to die. <laughs> versus, well, that's what they're saying, but they're actually long Apple. What, what's the, well, they're what's long the collective Apple. mood? Yeah, I mean, they're probably long big tech because it's dangerous not to be in those stocks, and those stocks are seen as defensive. I don't agree. I think those stocks are actually more cyclical. But I will tell you, the mood is very gloomy, and I think that bears are just waiting for that downturn. But the one thing that makes me think we're not going to get a downturn is that the question we get most frequently is, I have capital. I'd like to put it to work. Should I wait until the debt ceiling is behind us or do something now? And if everybody's asking that question, we're probably not going to see some major downdraft. That's our call. You think that some kind of debt agreement does deliver a pretty strong relief? rally based on that. Well, yeah, I think that and I think that the reason the market hasn't sold off as much is that there is this sense even when you listen to the most bearish investors, we all kind of think that they're going to get a deal done, right? I mean, that's the base case. So why bother selling if the base case is resolution? The psychology of this moment I find <clears throat> fascinating. 
<laughs> if you've made the call already and you're in the market, great. If you're on the sidelines and you're in cash, you're so nervous right now, Savita, because you believe that you're the guy that's going to get sucked in last. <laughs> right, right, right. And it's I mean, start I felt really. Up, and then you're going to yes. smash into the downturn. Of course, yeah. Well, here's the thing: if you look at asset allocations, there are more overweight bonds than stocks than we've seen since 08. So I think that there's less selling pressure. If you look at our own client flows, individual investors have been selling for the past four weeks. We actually saw a big spike in in outflows. <clears throat> That would indicate almost capitulation-like levels of selling. So I think that you know folks have basically um, braced themselves for this calendar date, this X date, yeah. and it's it's not necessarily that uh, potential. People are loving Savita talking here. I got stock recommendations coming. Do you want to stick in. around? Yeah, do you want to co-host oh, the I show? I mean, they're to. loving yeah. it here. Yeah. I mean, Waylon emails. Good morning, Waylon. Thank you for emailing. <laughs> Waylon emails in and says, "Go long Fender, FNDR." It's long Fender. Emailed in, tell mom, the Bryant, Tyler Bryant, Bryant Pinky Strat, $5,700. Waylon, good call. Yeah, we'll ask yeah. Santa wow. for that one. That's how much that costs. Yeah. Custom shop. And Santa's going to be like, strat. no. Oh. Savita, thank you. This Thanks was great. Thank you. This was great. Yeah, Savita Subramanian there, Bank of America. Fred Valliere of AGF Investments writing the following. If the X date really is June 1, we're in trouble because there simply may not be enough time to write the deal into legislative language. Then give lawmakers time to actually read it. If the X date is around June 6th or 7th, there may be time to reach an agreement. TK, pretty scathing from Greg this morning. Get out the calendar and someone that's known the calendar of Washington for decades and decades. Mr. Vallier briefs us this morning here on May 23rd. Um, I've been calling it next week, Tuesday, somewhere in the zeitgeist last night, Greg Vallier. I saw people talking about next week is suddenly upon us. Is it? Yeah, we're, we're getting there, Tom. I've been very negative, as you know. But I think that the caps, these spending caps are really crucial. The Democrats have agreed to a spending freeze. That's a big deal. So I, I think we, we're not going to default. However, a big, a big caveat, I don't think they can get it done in time. I think there's going to have to be an extension of a week or two because uh, there's a lot of members in both parties who need to be uh, persuaded. But we're getting there. We're getting a little bit closer. Which can kick down the road is best for Americans? Is it a shorter term one where they fix this in two weeks? Or do we want a can kick down the road into, say, September? You really don't want to go into September, Tom. I think that's that's going to be annoying to the markets. The, the longer this thing sits out in the sun, the more it's going to attract flies. So I, I think that we've got to get something done. And I think it can be done, but there's going to probably have to be a short-term extension. It's definitely already annoying to markets and far beyond. And it seems like there's been a shift in rhetoric away from uh, jawboating the other side with fiery threats of a default, something of a nature reflecting the fact that nobody wants to have the U.S. default. Is this a political shift on both sides to basically say, look, we're not going to do this. We're not holding the U.S. hostage. We're just trying to negotiate in good faith. Well, I think there's a, a growing feeling on Capitol Hill. This could be a pox on both your houses. If we don't get anything, I think the level of disgust toward Congress will increase if that's possible. So, no, I think both sides want to get this done. Both sides genuinely do not want to see a default. What is annoying to me is that at the very last minute they brought up revenues. We're going to talk about taxes now. That, that seems to be 
an issue that just complicates things. Let's talk about that, especially given the fact that tax receipts, tax uh, income this year was so far below what the U.S. was expecting. Part of the reason why the X date perhaps is a bit earlier than other people had been projecting. Is this because of a lack of investment in the IRS? Is this because of loopholes? Is this because of tax code or simply because the economy isn't doing as well as people had previously thought? Well, there are a lot of variables, Lisa. I, I, I would say that the, the one that could snag this whole thing is a proposal to cut back dramatically on the IRS funding, as you mentioned. If they did that, uh, that could drag this thing well into the summer. But I, I'd say they're, they're there. They probably have at least half of the deal done. Uh, so the, the, the odds continue to improve slightly that we'll get a deal in a week or two. What happened to all of the intransigent members of both parties, basically the ones on the right who have been saying we're not going to pass any kind of increase in the debt limit, we're going to mandate all sorts of cutting over our dead bodies? That was sort of the platform that they ran on. And then on the, on the other side, people pushing back on Biden and saying, why are you even negotiating? You're giving in far too much and you're looking weak. How much are you seeing those two sides willing to come to the table and actually vote for a plan that is hashed out between McCarthy and Biden? It's a really good point, and it's a big wild card right now that couldn't both parties hold their members. I think McCarthy's done a pretty good job at holding Republicans. I think a lot of Democrats don't want to be seen as uh, you know, c contrasting with Joe Biden. So I'd, I'd say in both parties, there's a, a resignation that they're going to have to get this done. Greg, I want to segue here. I was thunderstruck yeah. in the early, early morning yesterday of the Telegraph of London having as its lead headline the op-ed from the Washington Post on elderly presidents, of course, led by President Biden, the study that the Washington Post did. What was the ramifications inside the beltway of the post-study of many older presidents? Well, I think a lot of people think this has been overdone, but we see overnight Hillary Clinton, who is uh, late 70s, saying that, yes, I understand uh, Joe Biden is real old and this could be uh, a liability. You know, it's an issue that is not going to go away, but as I point out to people, Donald Trump has a birthday in about a month. He turns 77. Greg, don't you think, though, this is just a way of avoiding the actual elephant in the room? It's not about age, it's about mental acuity. Why don't we actually have that yep. discussion? Not all 70-year-olds are created equally. Not all 80-year-olds are created equally. In fact, I know some 90-year-olds who are as sharp as some of the 60-year-olds that I know. Greg, why aren't we having a proper conversation about this topic? Well, you're right. And you guys mentioned a few minutes ago, Henry Kissinger turns 100 today, and he's still really sharp. So the, you're absolutely right, John. I think that's the big uh, issue. But it's, it's going it's gonna to be a blunt object used against uh, Joe Biden whenever he says something inarticulate, whenever he looks frail. It's an issue he's not going to be able to avoid. Greg Vallier of AGF Investments. Greg, thank you. Appreciate it, sir. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Julian Emanuel around the it's table. True. Let's get to Julian from Evercore. Good morning to you, Julian. Good morning. I'll give you two views. Bank of America, constructive. JP Morgan, not at all. Where are you in the team right now? Somewhere in between? Uh, so think about it. Everything has been in between for the last seven months. Uh, this is one of these times, John, where the signal and the noise are incredibly difficult to parse and that there are times where they're just isn't that much information from the price. And what it comes down to is we are waiting to see if one year's worth of incredible, incredible tightening, I mean, really historic, is going to have the effect. And we're seeing, you know, minor parts of that effect. So for us, uh, essentially, what it comes down to is we do expect a recession to begin sometime in the second half. And for the equity market, that means down first and then likely back up essentially to here. Take the Ed Hyman dynamics of a, a Hyman recession. It's in your note, talking about some real gloom here into first quarter 2024. And also his call of dramatically lower inflation getting out there under 3%. And you've got SPX 4150. How are you going to frame equities forward given a Hyman recession and a Hyman disinflation? So that is where actually when you think about it the long term, which we as investors have been guilty of perhaps not thinking about, given the fact of these seven most difficult months uh, of sideways actions, the view 24 and 36 months out is literally unequivocally positive because of the fact that inflation is likely to fall below 3% sustainably. Have we worked through the stimulus, the $10 trillion stimulus during COVID? How far are we down in that? So if you look at in terms of, of the excess savings on the part of uh, consumers, you're really only about halfway through. Uh, and I think that, again, is, is one of these things that we fail to appreciate is, is this idea that there was so much money put into the system, both monetary and fiscal, that it's really still working its way through. And then the question is, and, and this is both given the market action, a glass half empty and a glass half full view. The glass half empty view is, my goodness, if we could have had that uh, banking uh, problems of the last several months in an environment where stimulus is still working through maybe that's not so good. Glass half full is that the stimulus is so profound that it's going to engineer this adjustment that we've had. This is the, you know, the tale of two narratives, whatever you want to justify the, the data with. So how do you really work in an environment where you can basically come up with it, whatever story you want to? You might as well be happy and just go with stocks, right? Uh, look, w we think you need to stay invested. We think this is an alpha extraction time. 
And, uh, you know, defensive sectors ha have worked and then they've not worked. AI, as we all know, seems to be the overriding uh, principle right now. We, like uh, others of the last half hour, are concerned that there's too much concentration there. Uh, and we do think that there is a bit of catch down to do, uh, given the fact that small caps have underperformed the way they have. But you really need to stick to your ding. And the interesting thing about this environment is with rates where they are, if you want to hedge a portfolio, it's extremely cost efficient to do so. I've heard that before. So let's pick up on that point in just a moment. I just want to finish on the poor breath point. Is poor breath actually any indication of how much oxygen is left in a rally? Because I feel like people complained about the breadth of the stock market and the bull market of the last 10 years, and it carried on. Why can't this continue? Uh, well, look, so it can continue, provided that we get that sort of glide path in terms of the stimulus that we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago wearing off. It's just our view that, it, first of all, this whole rate cut talk, forget about it. Sure. Okay? They're not – so there is some repricing in our view that needs to occur based on that misperception that, that the market has. That has been happening though, Julian. And I think what's interesting for me is that we've repriced yields higher at the front end, <clears throat> taken back some of those rate cuts. And this Nasdaq's still fine. So can you explain to me what the relationship is between what's developing in the bond market and what's happening in stocks? So the relationship is, again, this question of how, the time before the recession. Remember, uh, we've had a lot of excitement around AI in these last two or three months. And what uh, investors are sort of harping back to is the 1998 yield curve inversion. Uh, I saw something this morning that said, best start to the NASDAQ since 1998. Well, two things happened. First, you had a roaring bear market in 1998. And then if you got defensive, you gave up 300% gains in the NASDAQ over the next year and a half. So that's the conundrum that people face, and they don't want to let go. And that's Perhaps the right decision. Your shop is going to do the most eagerly anticipated daily call in about 10 minutes with Mr. Hyman. I want you to coalesce here the message from your shop to people in cash scared stiff. So the, the message is, is that it's okay to be in cash for now. But if you're thinking long term, you need to be prepared for that time where you need to shift assets. But that isn't coming until we get inflation sustainably lower, which, again, the path to get there is through an economic slowdown. Julian, final question. You touched on it. I just want to squeeze it in. Optionality. Do you want to hedge to the upside, to the downside? Where do you want to take advantage of where things are priced at the moment? Well, that actually comes down to you know one's own portfolio. Look at your portfolio. Think about how you feel. And we always say for uh, the retail investor is when the market's going here, and we do think you're at the upper end of the range here. We don't think this is a breakout. But if you have FOMO, options are cheap enough that you can buy upside in themes like the rest of the world. We actually prefer portfolio hedges with the S&P 500, where you can sell upside to finance downside, and it's very, as I said, cost effective. There we go. Brilliant. Gillian, that was wonderful. Thank you, sir. Do you want to talk about a debt ceiling? Do you want to take a, take a pass? Pass. Gillian <laughs> <laughs> Emanuel of Evercourt. Torsten Slock joins us, Chief Economist at Apollo Global Management. Torsten, I want to get to your spectacular chart today, which is lit up on Twitter uh, right now. But I got to follow up on Lisa's note there on non-farm uh, payrolls. I'm going to give you a should phrase. Where should non-farm payrolls be? 
Well, given that during the pandemic there was thrown five trillion fiscal stimulus on the economy and five trillion Fed balance sheet expansion, it's not a surprise that when you throw 10 trillion at a roughly 10, $20 trillion dollar economy, drawing that out of the economy is taking time. So that's why, in some sense, it's not surprising that it's taking time to get all this liquidity back, and therefore that it's taking time to get household savings drawn down, to get corporate savings drawn down, and therefore, to your <coughs> question, to get non-farm payrolls to really slow meaningfully. It would just need to go through right. a period before we get that slowdown that we have been so waiting for. So let's double barrel it. You've got non-farm payrolls coming down at some point. Your spectacular chart today shows the miscall of recession, doom and gloom, Drawing it out, drawing it out, folks. I'll, I'll put it out on Twitter here uh, when I can. Let's dovetail those together. To get to where you think we're going to get, is it just a smooth linear progression? Or is it going to be either a jump condition or even more brutal, discontinuous? What's Now, it going to be? This is absolutely critical because... Before, when the Fed was just hiking rates, 25 basis points, they were looking around saying, how is the economy doing? Okay, we go another 25. And once we get through that process, that was all very smooth and gradual. But the challenge is that we have now, over the last few months, added a banking crisis and tighter credit conditions and a banking situation where banks are seeing much less demand for commercial real estate loans, much less demand for CNI loans. Those indicators are now at 2008 levels. Those things raise the risk exactly as you're saying, Tom, that we may have that nonlinear slowdown over the coming quarters where tighter credit conditions may be accelerating the slowdown in the economy. This is the key debate. Is this recession delayed or a recession interrupted? And we're looking at data. And is there anything to give us any indication ahead of it? Or do we just have to wait and see what mystery box awaits us? No, absolutely. Because the challenge is if we threw 10 trillion at the economy, sucking that out again is going to take time. And how do I weigh that in my quantitative model purpose of the U.S. economy, where on the one hand, we had huge stimulus that's still stimulating. And at the same time, the Fed is trying to slow things down and we have tighter credit conditions. So the market thought, and that's what the chart is showing today, that the recession would have come like six months ago. But now it's taking a longer time to take that 10 trillion out. But what we do know is that the Fed is very, very keen on getting inflation down from 5% to 2%. And as long as that's the case, the Fed will continue to step on the brakes. The Fed will continue to slow down earnings growth and the Fed will continue to slow down hiring. There's been this sort of conundrum baked into the market where suddenly people are rethinking whether there was actually a banking crisis, perhaps taking that away from the equation a bit. And you're seeing yields creep higher and it hasn't really taken a bite out of tech valuations. Do you think that there really has been an economic sea change resulting on artificial intelligence, resulting from some of the shifts in uh, allocations of people's pocketbooks? I do think that very importantly, first of all, inflation is still way too high relative to the Fed's target. So importantly, the Fed will look at inflation at five and say, we have to do more to get inflation, at least keep rates at these levels for a longer time to get inflation down. And there are two reasons for that. Namely, first of all, housing is beginning to recover. That's putting upward pressure and housing, as usual, makes up 40% of the CPI basket. So that's lifting potentially inflation down the road. And the other thing is also that wage inflation is also coming down too slowly. In other words, wage average hourly earnings at 4.5% is not close to the 2-3% we were before the pandemic. So that raises the risk to your question, Lisa, that inflation will be sticky. And if inflation is sticky, that does mean that tech and growth and venture capital and particular growth But you mean the Fed is trying to slow down growth? Yeah. That should mean that growth should not be performing well. You're right tech. on cue. David Rosenberg publishes moments ago out of Toronto on sticky inflation. And he goes all Newtonian on us and he looks at first and second derivative. 
What's the derivative right now of the disinflation that we're seeing? And at what level do you have to get at where you've got legit second derivative convexity down to a lower level? Yeah, there are two problems. Inflation, and we'll get the new numbers on PCE, but that will just be derivative of the CPI we just got. But the problem is inflation is at five, and five is not two. And most importantly, it's not- five is not four. It's not four either. And therefore, five is not even moving down to two. If you look at the six months change, the three months change, the 12 months change in core CPI, it's still moving sideways. So yes, it is true to say that maybe owners, cool and rent and housing inflation could be coming down eventually. But with a lot of indicators in housing, traffic of prospective buyers <clears throat> is going up, existing home sales is going up, new homes is going up, right. home buyer confidence and home builder okay. confidence is going up. Even number of bids per home has also right. been going up. So that's all telling you that if CPI, in particular the housing component, starts to go up, inflation will indeed turn out to be more sticky. Lisa and I hang on every word you publish. Farrell could care less. But but we hang on it. And one answer is mortgage rates back up. 6.x percent. Suddenly, six days, seven days, eight days, we're at 7.04% 30-year bank rate. This time, with mortgage rates going up, what's it mean? Yeah, so at this point, it's not only mortgage <clears throat> rates that have been driving the housing market, it's also that jobs have still been strong and wage growth has still been strong. So on the scale here, that has clearly been dominating what has been happening to mortgage rates, and that's why housing has started to show a recovery. The fact that there are more bits per home sold now than there were six months ago is just stunning when you think about where mortgage rates are. So that means that we will get to that inflection point and to an earlier discussion where we might get that sharper slowdown where no longer be, well, be like this. what Friday or Monday no no so this may be several <laughs> months down the road because again remember both the banking sector tightening conditions and also mortgage rates at these levels eventually the Fed will succeed with getting inflation down and we should not doubt their commitment to getting inflation back to two percent which takes us back to where we started in a sense this 10 trillion dollars of stimulus that was pumped into the economy and the uncertainty of where we are in terms of breaking it down and pulling it out of the economy. Do we have a sense of how much was sucked out and how much just keeps getting circulated in terms of wages and bigger incomes that go into spending? Absolutely. That's really the key question, because the only way we can really get a good handle of that is to try to look at the data for how much savings is left across the income distribution. The Fed has quarterly data for that. Some of the banks, Citibank and Bank of America, have data that also on the private level. And the conclusion is still today, you have both for high, middle and low income groups still a higher levels of savings at these cash and checking accounts than what you had in the fourth quarter of 2019. So the answer to your question is we still need some more time before that excess savings has been worked down to a lower level. And that's when we ultimately will begin. We've seen, you spoke about this earlier, we've seen some of the credit card data showing some signs of weakness. You've also seen on that Bloomberg screen, restaurant performance index also beginning to roll over a bit. So there are some early signs of maybe consumers are beginning to hold back and delinquency rates also, in particular for lower FICO scores, are also beginning to go up. So yes, there's some early signs of cracks for the U.S. consumer, but it's still exactly the question you're asking. Pretty difficult to get an exam firm handle on what is the timing, but it is coming. No one should doubt that a recession is on the horizon. There's a big debate about what caused the inflation. Was it this question of some structural changes with people exiting the work fa- workplace and just uh, perhaps re-globalization or deglobalization? And how much was just money mon- uh, modern monetary theory failed? That essentially, yes, if you do just print money, you're going to get more inflation. And that's essentially what happened. I mean, how much can you parse out these two things? Yeah, so if you throw 10 trillion at the economy, no wonder that you get some inflation. And if you at the same time lower the capacity of the economy, meaning lower the supply side, if capacity starts shrinking, you both have more demand and you have less supply, that's a recipe for inflation going up. So now we're trying to balance that by pressuring demand, that by hiking rates, Mm -hmm. and supply chains are coming back. So that means supply is coming up to get the economy more in balance so that you're, we have talked about this for many years, the Taylor 
rule, if I look at my Bloomberg screen, says the Fed funds rate today should be nine. That's obviously not where we are. But well, if we are so far away from the Fed's goal of inflation and unemployment that we still need more to do to get to the point where there's more balance between supply and demand. Let's go to Chicago School by way of Austria. M2 has been a study. Most people say ignore M2 doesn't have recent academic validity. I'm sorry, M2 took off like a moonshot and it's cratered. What's it mean? So I would look at M2 as a reflection of the 10 trillion that was thrown in terms of aggregate demand that came along. And M2 is indeed now collapsing, but that's because the Fed is trying to withdraw liquidity. The Fed is trying to really slow the economy down. And we should, in equity and credit markets, not underestimate the commitment that the Fed has to slow down earnings growth, slow down hiring. The whole idea from the Fed is to slow down consumption, slow down capex spending. That's a very, very strong commitment to saying we need to slow the economy down in order to get inflation down from 5 to 2%. To put a bow on it and to follow up on what you said with the Taylor rule and a possible 9% Fed funds rate, which a lot of people say is implausible at this moment. How mispriced do you think where Fed funds rates should go in order to slow this economy, to bring out some of this $10 trillion of stimulus? Well, I think as Tom was saying, that's exactly the debate on the FOMC at the moment. Some FOMC members are saying, we no longer need to hike more. And others are saying, but wait a minute, maybe we do need to hike more because maybe the transmission mechanism is saying that more is needed. So I do think for sure, at least we will need to have rates elevated for a lot longer than what markets are pricing at the moment. The economist James Diamond, I believe, I, I believe he said he's a little leery on quantitative tightening right now. I mean, is that the heart of the matter? The Fed's going to have to blink and lose QT? So, well, there's a lot of discussion about what is the sequencing of how do you actually tighten policy. And here at this point, if you think that it is needed to get long rates further up to, say, cool the housing market well, down. Well, you, you've been driving them up. Torsten Slack alone has us to a 442-year <laughs> yield and a 30-year bond for uh, 4%. Yeah. I mean, this is what we've seen, this grind higher as people really rethink this Because the recession has been that, delayed. And right. if this delayed more, well, okay, no. if it's not coming, maybe rates do need to go up a bit more. I'll get the chart on Twitter. It's clearly the chart of the day. He is Torsten Slack of Apollo Global Bank. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE.
fantastic conversation coming up right now with our colleague and good friend Francine Lanquois sitting down with the CEO of Standard Chartered at the Qatar Economic Forum. Hello, Fran. Hi, John. Thank you so much. I am delighted to speak to Bill Winters. We'll talk about oh my God. the Middle East. We'll speak about <laughs> markets and we'll speak about everything in between. Bill Winters, thank you so much. Great to be here. For joining us. We'll talk about the banks and we'll talk about potential takeovers or not of Standard Chartered in a second. But what do you worry most about the markets? Is it the debt ceiling? Is it a banking crisis? Is it Fed's policy mistakes? I mean, right this minute, I'm not worrying about too much because I think things feel actually in a reasonable stasis in the world. Uh, of course, we're worried about the debt ceiling, but I heard the reassuring comments both from, uh, from President Biden and Speaker McCarthy yesterday. I, I have to think these guys know uh, what they're playing with, so I, I'm okay on that. Uh, I think this, the structural uh, resistance of inflation to come back down, that's the biggest concern. Not right at this moment, but just as that plays out over time, what's economic growth look like? I've been very impressed by the resilience in the U.S., in Europe, and of course this region, the Middle East, is booming. Asia is booming. Yeah. India is booming, despite higher but interest rates. So I think you okay. If you look at the debt ceiling, even if we have a resolution, are we playing with fire? Does it actually put the U.S. as a reserve currency, as like, you know, leader of the free world, at risk? Look, I mean, we've been, the, the politicians in Washington have been playing with the debt ceiling for decades. And you know, so far, there's not been an accident. Of course, every time it happens, we wonder, you know, given how crazy yeah. the politics is in the U.S. right now, is this going to be the time? That, but the fact is, the Treasury, the Treasury markets are behaving well. Credit markets are behaving well. So the market is not pricing in a bad outcome here. There's a lot of money in the Middle East. Do you think they're after a bank like yours? Uh, look, I think everybody in the world would love to own a piece of Standard Chartered Bank because it's a strong bank. We're doing well. We've got this super interesting footprint across Asia, Middle East, and Africa. So you're a takeover And we're target. cheap. So you're we're a takeover cheap. target. Like I say, if somebody wants to, to, to come and say, we can add more value to this bank than what you're doing today, where you're growing it at, at uh, double-digit growth rates, profits at right. uh, substantially higher, you can have an idea on how to do something better, please let us know. We'll come in. Uh, but is there, you know, the, the fact is we're a global bank today. We're adequately scaled for the environment. We're growing quite nicely. That's all I'm focused on. Okay, if you look at regulators um, in, you know, in the UK and elsewhere, would they be ready for takeover of a large systemic bank by you know, Middle Eastern money? Well, I noticed that there was a takeover of a large systemic bank in Switzerland a few weeks back, and it happened in a weekend. So I guess that means... That's in the, domestic. In the right, well, <laughs> in the right circumstance, uh, you know, regulators can get things going. Uh, I think the, uh, it, it's very impressive to see uh, how the, the, the various investors in the Gulf we're sitting here in Qatar today. I just had a panel discussion with, with the head of the, the, the Qatar Investment Authority. That's a very impressive investor with a, with a truly global perspective, a lot of experience investing. And I, I think these, the various countries in the Gulf, of course, are accumulating savings right now, and they're diversifying their economy. So that's why we're here. That's why we're investing so much capital into the Middle East, because we see these huge opportunities to connect that, that capital with all the opportunities in Asia and vice versa. So do you need to, to have a bank to do that? Yeah. No, you need to have a bank like us that's prepared to, to, to play that bridging role. What's the hardest thing being a bank right now? Is it how you deal with China? Uh, look, right at the moment, I think everybody's very focused on, on liquidity. So even though we're, we are, we as a bank, and I think the banking industry broadly, is extremely liquid. And will remain liquid even after we go through a period of quantitative tightening or whatever. Uh, but the rules changed when Silicon Valley Bank went bust and then Credit Suisse went uh, through its turmoil. Yeah a week later. Uh, so everybody's looking hard at whether their deposits are as sticky as we thought. Uh, I think that, 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 that as so many things have 
made it through these testing periods, we'll, we'll, the industry will be fine here. I'm sure Santa Charter will be fine. Uh, so that's the immediate concern. I think in the, in, in the longer term, for, for, uh, from a banking perspective, of course, we've always got an, an eye on the east-west tensions. But you know, the, the best thing that happens to our business is we keep trade levels very high, which is what they, I mean, we're record, record levels of trade between China and the US, just as an example. Uh, but China is accelerating its pace of opening up, opening up its capital markets. And for a bank that's structurally a connector, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And how can you be sure that it's opening up for real without a step forward, two step backwards? Because we're, we're sometimes hearing mixed messages from the Chinese authorities. I think when you look over, really over the decades now, uh, China has been sort of race ahead, consolidated a bit, race ahead. I think that's quite normal. The, uh, structurally, China is part of the global economy in a very, very big way. and wants to remain part of the global economy in a big way. Uh, in order to do that, they, they need to liberalize the arrangements for capital and goods and services moving in and out of China. That's been a steady objective for, for decades now. Uh, it's accelerating at the moment, uh, I think for all the reasons around the geopolitical tensions, and I think it will continue to move forward. But will they take time from, from time to time to consolidate? maybe just pull back a little bit before moving forward? Of course. Bill, when you talk about deposits and actually liquidity, do we need to look at depositors' base at some of the banks? Is there too much concentration? So are we going to see more regulation? And is that regulation warranted, or could, could yeah. it be like wrong regulation? It's, it, it, it's a big question. Uh, I think it, it's, it's very clear that there were some deposit bases, in particular in the U.S., although some would say Credit Suisse as well, yeah. that were too concentrated. And, uh, and we know that the market was merciless with those players. We know that in, in the U.S., the, the, the Fed now has put a, a term funding uh, facility in place. It's not a guarantee of the banking system, but it is a very, very substantial backstop. So I don't think we're going to see any more crisis. But I think everybody's looking to say, okay, let's think again about how sticky those deposits are. But, you know, Francine, at the heart of it is banking is a confidence business. And if we're going to have a fractional reserve banking system, technical term meaning Right. You borrow, you take sure. deposits right. and, you, and you turn them. Right. If we're going to have that system, central banks are going to have to, to accommodate that with, with transparent liquidity facilities for healthy banks. But do, does mobile banking change anything? Because we used to no. have to queue up and actually get deposits out Yeah, we used to have to manually. queue up. But, but I'll tell you, the moment that there was a queue in front of Northern Rock in 2007, the bank was done. So in fact, in some ways, that might even be worse because it was visible. It was a news story. Uh, so no, mobile banking means everything goes a bit faster. Yeah, bank runs are bank runs, and as soon as you lose confidence, it's hard to get it back. Does the end of Credit Suisse actually mean that you get market share in Asia? Look, I mean, Credit Suisse's business is being distributed across the market. UBS acquired a lot of it, but UBS was already the 400-pound gorilla, so they can't, they can't retain everything that, that came in from Credit Suisse. Uh, some of the money had moved before. Obviously, there's almost well, over $200 billion of outflows. Before that, that money all went someplace, and it's not all going back to UBS. So yeah, we're, we're, we're picking up uh, we're picking up RMs, uh, yeah. we're, so relationship managers. We're picking up assets under management. We're picking up some loan market share. Yeah. And that's, How much? We had twenty billion dollars of inflows last year, uh, and another five or so billion into our private bank in the first quarter of this year, which in the overall scheme of Credit Suisse is not a big deal. For Santa Chartered, it's, it's, uh, it's material. But we talk about the UK almost every day as, you know, it could do better, it needs to be better, there's not enough investment. Do you worry about the UK and, and London specifically as, as a capital market? I'm a big believer in the UK, right? It's a fundamentally resilient place. I, I, I think uh, Rishi Sunak and, and government are doing the right things right now. Of course, politically, they, they've, got, they've got a challenge given, given everything that we've been through. 
but uh, I think the country is doing the right thing. It's incredibly resilient. I think the fact that, that uh, we've not had an, an actual drop in economic, a negative economic growth, no recession, yeah. quite impressive given the buffeting in the economy. Uh, but there's an inflation problem. There's a I think there's, uh, there's, there's some, all sorts of challenges around corporate governance which, which have to be worked through. Okay, well, we'll have to get you back on to talk about that, Bill. Thanks so much. Bill Winters there, Standard Chartered. With that, John, I'm going to send it back to you in New York, and we'll have plenty more throughout the day. Hey, Francine, wonderful work as always. Francine Lacqua there with Bill Winters of Standard Chartered sitting in the Middle East at the Qatar Economic Forum. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.